Well, let's uh, go to Daniel 3. If you have a Bible, let's get after it. We'll be in Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Glad that you are here with us. You'll have to uh, forgive me a little bit. I uh, just got back last night from a trip with uh, a group of 25 students just now coming into high school. And so uh, I'm still kind of getting used to adults again, okay, and to civilization. It's a different kind of world, all right? So just give me some space, is all I'm saying. Let me acclimate myself a little bit and... And let me just get kind of back used to, to regular life. Uh, but I am glad to be back, and I am glad to be in Daniel 3 this morning, uh, which is an amazing text for us. Now, it was an interesting week in the news. If you've been paying attention, all kinds of things happen. You have a football player being arrested, okay? You have um, the Rockets about to sign Dwight Howard, okay, tonight. Um, you have all kinds of, of, of things going on. And, and, of course, you have the Supreme Court ruling, okay, which unless you have lived under a rock for the past week, and trust me, I tried. Um, I was surrounded again by, by middle schoolers. Um, you've heard, right, the Supreme Court has uh, declared the, the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, unconstitutional. Now, um, this uh, will, in fact, kind of push uh, forward the, the legalization of, of gay marriages. Christians react, okay, and have been reacting, and, and you've had good reactions, you've had bad reactions. Um, but quite apart from all of that, what was occurring to me this week was, wow, this is a really great example for my sermon series, okay? Uh, so, again, we've been talking about being resident aliens, right? Being a group of people uh, who exist and who, who worship a God in the midst of a surrounding group of people, a surrounding culture that doesn't worship a God and doesn't think the way that we think and want to act the way that we want to act and those kind of things. Um, and, and so Daniel and his friends, right, in, in, in the book of Daniel, they've been taken from Judah and they've been put in Babylon and they have all these different gods and different temptations, and different pitfalls around them. And their task is to remain faithful, okay, despite what's going on around them. They can't control the government. They can't control what's going on around them, but they can't control what they'll do and, and how they'll be faithful and who they'll worship and those kind of things. And so this is just a great example for us, again, because I've been, I've been trying to kind of build this series on the, the fact and the idea that you and I are in a similar situation. Okay? We're in a similar type of Babylon, okay? surrounded by a culture and a world that doesn't worship the God that we worship. Now, at one time, we might have thought that they did. And this might be why we're, we're surprised and upset when things like this happen. Right? At one time, we might have thought the government had kind of Christianity in its best interests, right? Um, but we're slowly and sometimes painfully learning that's not the case, right? There's lots of other people around us, and, and a lot of times the people in power aren't us. And they don't make decisions like we might want to make decisions and those kind of things. And so um, as I'm watching the, the news and watching Christians react, I'm, I'm seeing good reactions again and, and some bad reactions. Um, but I've been fairly, fairly encouraged by the reactions of Christians, um, I haven't heard a lot of calls for revolution, okay? Mm-hmm. I haven't heard a lot of calls to, to, to take up arms, right, or succeed, or, or those kind of things. And I have heard a lot of calls to double down on what do we really think about marriage? And how should we as the church really act in marriage? How should we witness to the truth of marriage instead of maybe putting a lot of energy and effort on legislating other people who don't worship our God um, to act the ways that we might desire them to act and that we might uh, hope for them to act? And again, whether you like it or not, this is kind of the situation that we're in, right? And it's just kind of this frustrating, confusing. Sometimes we're in the world and we look around us and we go, this doesn't seem comfortable to us. This doesn't seem right to us. I was reading an author, George Limbach. He said this, um, that Christianity, modern Christians, you and I, or in this awkwardly intermediate stage. And I thought that was a good description, that word awkward. Mm-hmm. We're in this awkwardly intermediate stage where we were once culturally established, but we're not yet disestablished. 
right? We're kind of on this trajectory out of the center of, of society. You've seen it again already happen in Western Europe where the church just really doesn't have a role to play anymore in the government and politics and those kind of things. And that's kind of the trajectory that we're headed towards. And that makes it for kind of a frustrating situation because we still want to tell people how to act. We still want to have control of society and those kind of things. But we're finding that we're losing the grips on that. We're losing the reins on that. And people are making their own choices um, and, and, and doing their own kind of thing. Now, again... This is both a challenge, right? It's, it's hard to live in a Babylon. It's hard to live surrounded by a culture that's hostile to you and hostile to your faith. But it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to be faithful, an opportunity for you to bear witness. And often, the light shines brightest in the darkness, right? I mean, your witness is most clear when it's surrounded by confusion and chaos and those kind of things. Um, so I think the call for the church, particularly in this situation is to bear witness to the beauty of marriage. Okay, to bear witness to the, the life that God has provided for people in um, the marriage that he has, has set up. Um, this is a chance. I think there's an opportunity for us to, to show uh, the world the beauty of our marriage. Not to force them necessarily to act the way we want them to act, but instead to invite them by witness. They get to watch the life that we've found in Christ. And, and one day they might go, I'd like to be in Christ as well and find that life as well. Now, can I just say very, very gently... My generation, okay, I'm 25, my generation, you're seeing them start to get a little more political clout and, and maybe a little louder voice and, and some more decision control um, making uh, capabilities there. When my generation grew up, we didn't see a whole lot of marriages that we wanted to participate in. Mm-hmm. In the church, right? So that, that's, that we got to be honest, the church lost this battle for the culture of marriage way before the Supreme Court made a decision. We lost when divorce was rampant. We lost when abuse um, and, and all kinds of these, these wicked things were happening. And when we were growing up watching it all, right, in the church. Um, so we didn't want a part of it. Can I just kind of speak on the group of people that I know? It just wasn't interesting to us. We saw it and didn't like it. And what you're seeing is now group of people exploring other options, mm. right? Maybe there are other things that will find life and satisfaction. Now, we might know as Christians that there aren't, but we did a, a crummy job of showing the world that. I mean, we did a really, really bad job of that. And so, I mean, regardless of even, like, right, homosexual people who, who want to have homosexual marriage, but even, like, heterosexual people, right? I mean, the average age, I think, in America to get married is 25.6 years old. Um, so I've still got half a year, okay, uh, to, 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 to make the average there. Um, I was actually reading an article about a guy who lives in New York who says he can tell who Christians are because if they're married and they're under the age of 25 or 30, they're probably Christians. Because, again... This kind of age group, we're just not interested in marriage, right? I mean, we're just not, we'll, we'll cohabituate, right? We'll live together, right? We might even have kids together. We're just not going to sign a certificate. We're not going to do the ceremony that you want us to do, those kind of things. Why? Can I speak of the evangelical? Because we saw people do it and it didn't work very well. But if we had seen them do it in a life-giving, beautiful way, guess where we might be seeking life, and beauty, right? I mean, we might be seeking it in, in that form of marriage, right? So I think the challenge for the church, again, particularly in a hostile culture, is not to get really angry and upset, right, and start training for the militia and those kind of things, <laughs> but it's to step back and go, okay, how can we most faithfully show the world the life that's been found in Christ? Where can we repent? Where can we reform? Where can we step back and say, okay, let's, let's, let's get on the same page here and let's do this right and instead of, instead of railing our fist at people, right, instead of trying to force them to do what we want them to do, 
how about let's, let's you and I decide to do this the correct way? Um, and this is what you're seeing with Daniel, right? They're, him and his friends, they're going to be faithful. They're going to do what they're supposed to do, worship the way they're supposed to worship. And you're going to see it have ripple effects in their culture. You're going to see um, the king and the people around them, right, start to notice, start to, to pay homage to their God, those kind of things. So we're in Daniel 3. We're going to continue to get stories of Daniel and his friends getting in some trouble, okay, but then somehow managing to get their way out of it, remaining faithful all the while. So we're in Daniel 3. We'll pick up in verse 1. And one of my favorite stories in Daniel and in the scriptures, um, you remember I said we're going to try to avoid the VeggieTale temptation, okay? So this is one of them, right? Very cute VeggieTale story. Um, if you haven't seen it, okay, you should go home and watch it. I'm sure we, among us represented right now are many DVDs, I would imagine, <laughs> of uh, VeggieTale, so it's, it's available to you. Um, but a, a real powerful and, and prophetic text here. We'll spend two weeks actually on Daniel 3. Um, as we kind of dig into the, the story here. So three, 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So that's about 90 feet tall and about 9 feet wide. It's a fairly thin, I mean, it's an interesting kind of dimension there. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the official of the provinces. So basically everybody, okay, the who's who, okay, of this the, of Babylon. You'll see this throughout chapter 3. There's going to be this long repetitive list. And you see them again and again and again. And it's trying to let you feel the weight, right, of, of kind of the, I mean, it's this momentum headed towards the statue and the worship of the statue. So everyone's been invited to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, guess who? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. You'd think they'd come up with like an acronym, okay, um, just to be able to do this faster, get out easier. Um, they all gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You see that language again? Set up. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. Nebuchadnezzar set this up. Um, this is an extension of his power and his will. Okay, This kind of comes out of his self-identity and self-worship. Nebuchadnezzar sets this image up, and he invites all the important people to come and bow down before it. The herald proclaimed, verse 4, aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all kinds of music, right, okay, um, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, thank you, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, um, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this big golden statue, okay? Um, it's, it's, it's likely that this is related to chapter 2. If you remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's this dream where there's this big statue. He's the head of gold, right? He's like, hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> Let's maybe make a statue. We can all come, come, come down to it and bow down to it. We don't know for sure if the statue of himself or a statue of a Babylonian god, okay? Um, either way, kind of the, the, the thought is the same. The gods and the kings were very tightly linked back in this culture. It's hard to figure out where one stops and the other begins. You'll see Nebuchadnezzar has very violent personal reactions, to people who don't worship it. So there's obviously a sense of self-identity to this statue, even if it is a god. Um, again, Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. Um, his worth, his identity, his power is tightly linked into this kind of statue here. And he calls everyone together to come and to worship this, this statue. Now, this might seem a little weird to us, okay? Um, I'm guessing most of you, and hoping most of you, haven't never worshipped in front of this large, towering kind of statue, okay? Um, I was once in Nashville last year... I don't know if you know this, but in Nashville, they have a recreated Parthenon. 
Um, and it's this big tourist spot. It's fully recreated uh, the size it's supposed to be originally. And inside of it, they have a, a, a model of the goddess Athena um, to scale. Again, to size, it's 42 feet tall. Um, it's this massive kind of towering statue. Um, I don't think it's pure gold, but it's, it's plated and ornate and all those kind of things. And, and we were up there with a group of students, and, and we went in and, and kind of were looking around. And I, I was with a friend named Michael, and, and we kind of walked up in front of the statue. And it just kind of overwhelms you. I mean, it just kind of, you, you forget about the rest of the world. And, and you just kind of get lost in, in this, I mean, she's this, like, goddess. It's kind of weird. Um, but this huge, massive tower, okay, in front of you. And there's, there's people everywhere. It's a big tourist spot. Kids are running around doing things, playing frisbee and those kind of things. And, and we were looking at it. And before we knew it, like, time had passed, right? And it was, like, 15 minutes later, and we're just standing there with our jaws open, right? Kind of drooling, looking at this statue. And it hit me on the way out. I was like, I can understand why someone could worship a big statue. I mean, there was something about just being in front of it that, like, draws you to it. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, right? You probably felt this standing, like, near the Grand Canyon or this big mountain or something like that, right? Just this sense of there's something bigger and more powerful than you are. And, and maybe this will make sense of your world. Maybe you can focus on this and forget about everything else for the moment, right? I, I, was, I, I love thinking, you know, I, I understand that. I mean, I can understand the draw, the appeal that, that this would have over imaginations and hearts. And for a, a Jew in the dispersion, in the, in the exile, this would most definitely have been the biggest, most impressive thing they'd ever seen in their life. Um, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar says, everyone's going to come. Everyone's going to worship it. They're going to bow down to it. Now, again, the, the Israelites trying to be faithful are going to have a problem with this. Um, and we'll see this come up, verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship this golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. So um, these Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't worship. Okay, we'll see this is a big deal for Jewish people. They don't worship other gods, and they're not going to bow down to this image um, as well. Now, a couple questions come up uh, as you kind of read through this part of the story. The first is, where are the rest of the Jews? Right? And so there's a large group of Jews that have been sent into the exile. Not all of them, right? But from the royal family, um, probably more than these four that we've heard about, Daniel and these, these three friends. Um, why aren't they called out? There's probably this implication here that, that they're probably bowing down, right, before the statue. And there's this even more kind of sinister question, which is, where's Daniel? Right? I mean, where's our boy Daniel? Why is he in trouble for not, for not bowing down to the statue? Um, kind of questions that, that kind of wrestle around in your mind. Um, now, you'll, you'll see, possibly the answer to these questions is, it appears these three young men are being maliciously accused, right? That's what the text says, as if there's like some jealousy, um, so they've been promoted up high in Babylon, um, and, and the Chaldeans are wanting, are wanting them out, right? And are kind of jealous of them and upset about the situation. So they see the perfect opportunity, right? Nebuchadnezzar is all excited about the statue he's built. He wants everyone to worship, to fall down, and, and they don't. And so they, they call it to the attention of the king. The king brings them in before him, verse 14. He answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, another little phrase here. We've seen this before in Daniel. This kind of ironic, foreboding, foreshadowing phrase. Who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar sets himself up in some kind of savior role, right? He gets to choose life or death. From the men in front of him. If you worship me, if you do what I say, you get life. If you don't, I'll throw you in the fire. And what God will come up against me and save you? What God will save you? Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. In verse 16, they say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And now this 17 and 18 are, are two of the most powerful verses in the Bible. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this next verse, it gets kind of even more extreme. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here's what they say. Our God is able to deliver us from the fire. He will deliver us from the fire. This kind of bold statement of faith. And then they say, and if he doesn't, we'll just die. (laughs) We're not going to worship you. And we're not going to worship your gods. We're not going to bow down to the image that you have created for us. These Jewish men stand up. I mean, can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and these three little pawns, right, probably just spat in his face. And they said, kill us. We're not going to do what you told us to do. Put us in the fire. Now, um, this is uh, kind of a, a scene that gets you into, I think, a, a very important kind of principle um, in the scriptures. Okay, so if you would flip with me to Exodus uh, chapter 20, you see the Jewish people had it ingrained in their hearts and imaginations and minds that they were not allowed to and would not worship other gods. Now, you might seem it's like it's not that big of a deal, right? Just fall down in front of the God, in front of the statue, Okay. Save yourself, let yourself um, have continued influence in the empire, those kind of things. You can convert people, um, just don't, don't fall down, right? But the Jewish people, um, from their beginning, had this sense of commitment to, to not worshiping anything other than their God. And this comes from the Ten Commandments. You'll see this here in Exodus 20. So, so God has taken them out of Egypt. You'll notice, if you watch the timeline here, God saves his people, and then he gives them the way of life. Even in the Old Testament, the law, the Torah, his instructions, weren't meant to save them, right? This was his gracious gift to them for how they live as freed people, how they live as his people, how they live when they're out of slavery. It's like that for you and I, right? We're saved. Christ saves us. And then he gives us commands. He gives us things to do. And and these aren't things we do to earn our salvation. We do them because we're saved. This is the way of life for people who know Jesus and for people who have been set free from sin and death and those kind of things. So look at Exodus 20. Um, he's brought them out. Verse, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've saved you. This is what I've done. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is on the earth beneath or that is the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For the Lord your God... I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So here's the kind of, again, engraved on their imaginations, um, the most important kind of text for these Jewish people. You won't have other gods 
in front of this God. You won't serve other gods. You won't make images. You won't bow down to statues. And Jewish people throughout history have been willing to die for this. And this has been a line that they just do not cross. They will not cross. Um, you see this over and over and over again. And really, it's only the Jews and the Christians who have had this kind of steadfastness to this exclusive idea of God, that we just don't worship other gods. We draw a line and say, we will not bow down, we will not worship, we will not praise any other gods. And we'll go to our grave obeying that commandment. Now, you might think, why? Okay, why is that? God here appears, and in other places, maybe the scriptures, to be this kind of like glory hog, right? I mean, imagine if I was your friend, okay? And and I said, look, if we're going to be friends, you just can't have any other friends, all right? I don't want you to talk about other friends. I don't want you to see other friends. I don't want you to have fun with other friends. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to be your only friend, right? I mean, God sometimes... Sounds a little needy in the Bible, right? Like, is he jealous? Is he have issues? Okay, what's going on? Um, these other gods just doesn't want them to have a part. Well, there's actually a logic behind um, the biblical command to worship. So when God says, worship me, right? It's not out of a sense of need. It's not like he really wants to feel good about himself, right? And doesn't know that he's really great um, and is all worthy. And so he'd really like to hear it from us. Um, it's because there's, there's built into the way of life, right? There's this reason why you and I should worship, and a reason why we shouldn't worship other things. There's this, we might call it like a biblical logic to worship. Um, so, in fact, if you have your worship guide, this is your first kind of blank here, okay? The biblical logic to worship. Here we go. You ready for it? It's this. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or for restoration. Another way you can say that is we become what we worship. We become what we worship. In fact, this phrase, this thought, okay, is taken from a really good book called the um, um, We Become What We Worship. It's a biblical theology of idolatry. It goes through the entire Bible, looks at these commands against idolatry, these commands to worship God, and it sees this kind of logic, okay? What happens when human beings worship, and by the way, it's not a choice of if we'll worship, it's a choice of what we're going to worship, is we start to become like what we worship. And this is why God would rather us worship him than other things. Because when we worship him, we'll find life. When we worship other things, we're going to find death. We're going to find um, not too great of things. Now, so you see this with children, okay? This is kind of just a, an obvious fact of life, okay? So children, whatever they think is cool, right? Whatever they think is admirable, whatever they think is, is worthy, they're going to start to imitate it. They're going to emulate it. Right? I mean, they're going to act like dad. They're going to talk like mom. They're going to do those kind of things. Right? They're going to um, act like their favorite celebrity. They're going to talk like their favorite uh, musician. They're going to um, try to play like their favorite athlete. Okay? And, and adults do this as well. We do it kind of differently. Right? But, but human beings, we, we just kind of start to look like whatever it is that we, we really like, that we really ascribe worth to. And to your right would say, um, you become like what you worship when you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. I mean, you can see this if, if, if people become friends, you, you'll see types of humor start to rub off, right? And so, if, I mean, if you think someone's really funny, you're going to start using some of the phrases they say a whole lot, right? Because you've said that's worthy, that's, that's funny, and, and you're going to start to be like that. You're going to start to have that kind of rub off on you. Now, this is intrinsic, I, I'd like to say, to being human. I think this is just a part of what it means to be human. If you remember Genesis 1, humankind's created as the Imago Dei, as the image bearers. Um, one way you might think of this is that humans, by their nature, inherently, are spongy mirrors. 
Okay, we're spongy mirrors. Whatever it is that we place in front of us constantly kind of fills us up and it reflects out around us. And there's really, it's kind of a horrifying fact, there's nothing you can do to change that. And there's really nothing you can ever do. Regardless of what it is in front of you, it's going to kind of soak itself up into you. Okay, like this old moldy sponge that you are. And then it has this like mirror effect, right? It's it's also going to go out into the world. It's going to go out into the environment around you. Now, God has originally designed humans to, to do what? To soak up him, his life, his peace, his joy, and to have that reflect out to the world around them. But it's possible to exchange that. Take God down, put something else up. <clears throat> but then you start to become like that. And it's not going to be a good thing to put in your sponge, and it's not going to be a good thing that you put out to the rest of the world. When God says, worship him alone, don't worship anything else, it's because he realizes the transforming effects that that has on his people. Flip with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Let me show you this, we'll head back to Daniel, okay? Psalm 115. We become what we worship. This is an important, important principle, I think, in the Bible. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. Psalm 115, we'll pick up verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Anyone else here, Chris Tomlin? For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Look at verse 8 here. Those who make them become, what? Like them. So do all who trust in them. Here it is. Those who make those idols become like them. Now here's what's interesting. If you are a rabid reader of your Bible, what you'll notice is in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah and texts like that, when, when the scriptures talk about people who worship idols, they say they have ears but they can't hear. They have eyes but they can't see. They have noses but they can't smell. The language the Bible uses about idols, it also uses about idol worshipers. Why? Because in verse 8, those who make them and put their trust in them, become like them. This is why, for the Jewish people, this is the line you don't cross. If you want to be one of God's people, if you want to have that identity, the moment someone says, bow down to anything else, you say, kill me. Or deal with it. Because I'm not doing it. In fact, the God that I worship, that won't allow me to worship your God, is able to save me, he will save me, and even if he doesn't, I'll just burn. But I'm not going to bow down. Why? Because I don't want to become something other than one filled with the love and, and peace and joy and satisfaction of my God who's able to live that out and reflect that into the world around me. So, head back to Daniel, okay? So we're in Daniel 3. Dave said we're not going to. Um, our God can save us. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Now, a point two on our worship guide, one of what you see here is, is in an alien culture, idolatry is a constant temptation. Okay, in an alien culture, idolatry is a constant temptation. So Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. There's constantly going to be this, this temptation for them to bow down to Babylonian gods or Nebuchadnezzar, uh, all these other things claiming their loyalty, vibing for their uh, worship. And you and I are in a similar situation. Okay, if you're in this hostile culture, there are always going to be things around you 
sometimes things within you that are going to be the calling for you to, to no longer worship God, to, to, to start to, to practice idolatry, to worship something other than God. It's a constant kind of temptation um, for those who, who live in a hostile culture. So verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed. Now, literally, the, the, the Hebrew here says, or the Aramaic says, the image of his face was changed. So there's this play on words. He's built up this image, most likely of himself. But when someone doesn't bow down to it, his image, his real image starts to change. And you'll see he's overcome by rage and fury. What we'll notice um, as we read Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar is not the most emotionally stable person you've ever met. Okay, um, Dr. Phil would have a heyday with Nebuchadnezzar. He is... A man ruled by his moods and emotions, by his sense of, of worth and security, okay? Um, so the image of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Um, he's upset. He's mad. Cook it up, all right? Get the heat up there. Verse 20. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fire furnace. Again, interestingly enough, I think these three guys would have walked in, right? We just told you, we'll go in the fire if that's what you want. We're not putting up a fight here. We're just not going to do what you told us to do. Never notice us seven times. Make it hot. Bound them up. Throw them in the fire, okay? So they were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, watch this. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll come back to this, but the people serving the king, worshiping the image, end up dying. They end up being taken up by the flame, okay? There's this contrast comparison to the fates here. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, here's where it gets interesting. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, didn't we cast three guys in there? Did not we cast three bound men into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Okay, good answer. He answered and said, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar puts three guys into the fire. Um, the people carrying them in the fire get killed. These two guys seem to be okay. Then he kind of is peering into the fire and he sees four guys walking around like they're not tied up and like they're perfectly fine. Now, interpreters have had a field day with this fourth guy, right? Who's this fourth guy? Where does he come from? Is this a shadow? Okay, is this David Blaine? Has he showed up to help them escape from the ropes? What's happening here in the fire? Now, Jewish interpreters had all these kind of creative ways of explaining this. And then so have Christian interpreters. I mean, people have a kind of a field day when you get things like this in a text, in a story, that, that you can kind of take however you might want to take. Um, my favorite interpretation, just for like creative and unique points, right? I don't think it's right. Um, but it's, it's, there's this large Jewish tradition that thinks this fourth guy is Habakkuk. So the prophet Habakkuk, he, he writes his own book in the Bible. Um, and there's actually this story, okay, Habakkuk lived approximately around the same time. There's a story, uh, uh, there's this text where Habakkuk is in a field one day, and he's making dinner, and he's just minding his own business in the field, making dinner. All of a sudden, he has this, like, sci-fi experience where he closes his eyes, and he's, like, transported across the globe. And he, like, blinks and opens his eyes, and he's in a fire, okay, with three guys he's never met. He gives them the food. He helps them out of the, the, the cords, okay, and the ropes. They kind of meet, say hi, and then he again blinks and is transported back to his field without his meal. He's like, what just happened, okay? Um, so, I mean, there's been kind of this creative kind of interpretation. Now, Christians, when they get to this text, traditionally, historically, for the majority, have seen this fourth character as Jesus. God with us, right? One like the son of, of the gods. 
Later on, he'll call an angel a messenger. It's someone from the Most High God who shows up to save and deliver in the fire. And isn't that usually like our God, right? Not to bring us out of the fire, but to, to be with us in the fire, to save us in the fire. This is what Matthew calls Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. You have this kind of pre-incarnation sighting of Jesus. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into this fire and they, they meet the Son of God. And he unties them. They walk around. They're saved. They're delivered. Now, so the king rises up. He sees this. Um, verse uh, 26. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. A little more humble now, okay, from Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over their bodies, uh, the bodies of these men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I love that last detail for a reason. I don't know if you've ever been to like a, a, a camp out, okay, or fire, roasting marshmallows. You got a smoky smell, right? It just won't come off on you. You have to shower like three or four times. Well, they're like, hey, they don't even smell like smoke, right? I mean, that stood out to them. Um, they got the fire. They don't even smell. Nebuchadnezzar answered, said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Again, Nebuchadnezzar has this moment of realization. Again, we've seen this. We probably shouldn't see this as like a true conversion. He'll be back to his old ways soon. But because of this, this act he's seen in front of them, because of their faithfulness, their witness, his eyes are opened up to a, a, a God who, who's bigger than his gods, who's bigger than himself. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. So he's a man of extremes, right? One minute, they're worshiping the God, they're going to die. The next minute, hey, you see something bad, we're going to tear your arms off, okay? Um, and so they kind of get this legislative uh, position in, in the society. Um, then the king promoted them even more, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the province of Babylon. So you've got this amazing story of, of these three Jewish men unwilling to worship any god but their own. Um, now, when you and I start to think about the story and how it might apply to us, right, and the temptation for idolatry in, in kind of a hostile environment, an alien culture, um, we might at first think that this doesn't apply to us. We don't have false gods around us, right? You're not often called to worship a statue, okay? Um, let me take a poll, a quick poll. Who here knows somebody, hopefully it's not you, but who here knows somebody who worships the Babylonian god Bel? Nobody? Okay. Um, Zeus? Anybody? Anybody even know somebody who worships Zeus? Now, there's actually a very small group of people who do worship Zeus, okay? I, I don't know of anyone who worships Bel, the Babylonian god, but the, Zeus is still around to a, a, a small extent, right? But the basic point, right? You and I don't have that kind of temptation, right? That kind of um, statue, false, foreign god in front of us temptation um, to commit idolatry with. But I think if we really understand what idolatry is, you'll see that it's just so much a temptation for us. <laughs> In fact, maybe more dangerous of a temptation because it's harder to spot all the time. So you've got this in your, your guidance here. Here's our definition for idolatry. Here's what we'll say it is. It's placing ultimate worth and faith in anything other than God. Placing ultimate faith and worth um, in anything other than God. So an idol is whatever claims the loyalty that only belongs to God. It's what takes his throne in your life or in the life of your community. What you put your ultimate trust in, your ultimate faith in your ultimate sense of security in. It's what you go to for your sense of satisfaction, peace, joy. 
It's what you trust to give your life meaning and purpose, guidance in your life. And idols come in many shapes and sizes. They come in many, many shapes and sizes. It's really, again, taking anything but God and putting it in that, that place of worship, in that place of, of enthronement in your life. John Calvin said that the, uh, the human mind is a factory of idols. I mean, there's just no limit to what we can make an idol, right? I mean, you'll see this. I mean, even good things can become idols in people's life. So, so common idols, historically, I mean, from creation, I think, um, or from the fall, have been power, money, sex. I mean, these are kind of the three big ones, right? These things become idols in people's life. They get consumed by it. This kind of controls them and guides them. They kind of get trapped inside of it. Um, but, but then you get, I mean, other things become idols. All kinds of different different kinds of idols. Um, good things can become idols, right? I've seen family be someone's idol before, right? A spouse or kids. I mean, you see that a lot in, in kind of, I'm a teacher, right? So I see helicopter parenting where parents, I mean, their whole world is their kids. They ignore everything. They ignore God. They ignore their spouse. They ignore their friends and family. They ignore their church. It's all about their kids. They place their whole, right? If their kid were to do something wrong, it would shatter their identity, it would, it would completely rip them up from the inside out. That's where they've placed everything. They put all their eggs in that basket, right? It's taking the place of God in their lives. Um, it can even be ministry, right? People have done that. It's foundation for me, I think, for most leaders in churches, right? Is that your ministry, your sense of, of what you do for God becomes an idol. It becomes more important than God himself and worshiping him and, and getting satisfaction from him, those kind of things. And again, don't forget the logic of worship, right? If you worship money you start to become like this, this human calculator. And that's what the controls you, right? Every waking thought, every waking desire. You, you see everything in terms of plus or minus and cost. If you worship sex, right, you're consumed with how you look, how other people look. If you worship power, you become more and more and more ruthless. Idols, they come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, and, and I think they're just as much a temptation for you and I, even though it's not a 90-foot statue in front of us. You're in a hostile culture. There's this temptation to idolatry, to not worship God as you should. And it'll have this negative effect on your life. So if you're wondering, um, you know, maybe what idols you struggle with, what idols are in your life, I think one of the ways you can do this is to ask yourself some questions, okay? So where do you spend most of your money? I mean, what really do you invest a whole lot into? That's going to be something important in your life, right? Where do you spend a lot of your time? I mean, if you were to like lay out hours, you'd probably see a couple things rise to the front, right? These things are, my life is built around these things. If you were to, this has always been an interesting question to me. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Mm-hmm. So like if, if nothing's vying for your attention, right? You're just kind of relaxing. What are you thinking about? Where do your thoughts just naturally kind of turn? What do you spend your money on? Do you spend your time on? Where do your, where do your thoughts kind of turn? What is, what is it that you talk about the most? Right? What is, what is it? I mean, so people who worship media, entertainment, right? That's always what they're going to be talking about. The movie that they saw, um, the music they listened to, those kind of things. So again, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But, but even those good things can kind of take a place in your life where all of a sudden God's not there anymore. And all of a sudden these things are leading you more than God's leading you. They've, they've become kind of this idol in your life. I think it's a big temptation for you and I. Now, I think Nebuchadnezzar shows us something here. I think Nebuchadnezzar has a self-idol, okay, an idol of self here. In fact, I think if you really kind of push everything to the side 
and try to get to the heart of idolatry, you'll see this. The heart of idolatry is the worship and exaltation of self. That's on your guide here. The heart of idolatry is the worship and exaltation of the self. Nebuchadnezzar, he set this idol up. He set this idol up. He set this idol up. He's enraged when people won't worship it. His image changes when they won't worship it. Nebuchadnezzar is this highly insecure man who has this vying sense for power and wants people to worship him and see how important he is, those kind of things. I do think, actually, that the self, you, are the most common form of idol. And it's a very interesting thing, right? God created us to be image bearers, and the image we start to bear is our own image without the image we were created to bear. And there's a cycling of dehumanization that happens where you try to take everything away except yourself, and it's this void of nothingness and meaninglessness where you just chase after every little whim and desire that you might have around you. I think, in fact, that idolatry of the self is the most original form of idolatry. I think you see Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, what they wanted to do is they wanted to get to define morality themselves. They wanted to say what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do, what tree they're allowed to eat from and not allowed to eat from. They wanted to know good and evil. And God looks at it and says, they've tried to become like God. They've grasped for that power. They've tried to put themselves on the throne of the universe. Um, I think in our modern life, okay, um, this is the most common form of idolatry. Ask yourself this question. I don't know if, I mean, you can kind of paint this in broad strokes globally and historically. Why aren't there statues of Zeus around? Why don't you see statues of Bel around? I mean, why, for the most part, have those Greek and Roman gods just been completely gone away? It's silly to most people. The answer would be Christians. Christians are the reason why. We convinced a majority of the world that those things were silly, right? Hey, he can't talk to you. You're making food for him, but you realize you're also throwing that food away because he's not eating it, right? I mean, I've always wondered that, right? These, one of the big deals with having these idols was you would feed them. And I'm wondering what happens when they realize there's no digestion there, that the food doesn't, I mean, somebody has to be taking the food away from the idol, right? And like throwing it away. What's going through their kind of minds? Well, Christians convinced most of the world these idols really aren't much of anything. But what happens when these, these physical idols leave is self enters into the scene. I mean, you can kind of see this philosophically with big movements of history. We might call this, you might want to use the term post-modernity for this. And, and it might even stretch all the way back to modernity, to the kind of enlightenment area. We will decide our fate. We will decide what's right and wrong. We don't need authority. We don't need tradition. We definitely don't need religion. I'll decide what's right for my life based on how I feel, my experiences, my desires. I'll be the God of my life. In fact, I think every, um, every form of idolatry is technically, ultimately, a, a worship of the self. Um, I think it's characteristic of idolatry that an idol is only as useful to you as much as it serves your purposes. Which is why I think, other than the one true God, you have polytheistic religions. Because you need a handful of gods to do what you want them to do. And you'll hold on to a God and bring him into your little circle in as much as he's able to accomplish what you need him to accomplish. I mean, it's, it's a, an end to your means, um, but not the, the end itself. Um, I think idolatry is often saying, and kind of filter this through your mind, okay? I don't know if maybe you've ever communicated this to anyone. I know I have sometimes, but, but idolatry of the self, here's what you're kind of shouting to the world. Thou shalt have no other gods but me, right? I mean, have you met that person? Who's just like, they obviously think they're the most important thing in the world. And they're really frustrated right now because I don't think they're the most important person in the world. Or have you ever met the kid, right, who's grown up and their whole life they've been told they're the most important thing in the world? They're the most maladjusted, miserable human being you've ever met? 
And you're just wishing someone at one point would have sat them down and said, there's something bigger than you. And you'd just get along a whole lot better in the world if you realize that. And more than that, I mean, there's, there's a God, right? He's much bigger than you created. You controls your life. Um, Eugene Peterson says one way to define the spiritual life is getting so tired and fed up with yourself that you go into something better, which is following Jesus. That eventually you come to the end of your rope and you say, I just don't have any more answers. I don't think I'm a very good God. And so you find one who is. You find God with us in the fire there. Um, now, the last point uh, for this morning here. The end of idolatry. The end of idolatry is death. While the end of worship is life. There are high costs. There's a high price you pay with this worship thing. You become like what you worship. You worship God. Um, you become like him. You start to reflect his character's image, his experience of um, the world, one of joy and satisfaction. If you worship things other than God, you start to find death and destruction and unsatisfaction and, and addiction and pain and, and those kind of things. They're high prices to pay. You see this with the soldiers, right? I mean, the soldiers um, who are following Nebuchadnezzar, who have bowed down to the image, they're ultimately what in the story? They're killed. They're caught by the fire. And then the ones who are willing to go in the fire to not worship God are the ones who are saved, or the ones who are delivered. The end of, of the worship is life. When you worship an idol, there's this, I, I alluded to it, there's this dehumanizing sense to it. Humans weren't meant to do that. And there might be this brief kind of high of autonomy that you get. But it, it, it collapses underneath itself in this low of, of, of something that's subhuman, a human. Humans were meant to bear the image of God. We were meant to be filled up with his glory, to reflect out his love and beauty to the world. And when we're not, there's a sense of, of us not really actually being humans, of, us, of resisting some kind of sub-state um, when we do that. We worship the God who's with us. The God who, just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, is known in Jesus through the Spirit, the triune God. We worship Him. We let Him be the center of our lives. We let Him be the center of our affections. We let our lives be filled up with Him. And then we reflect Him out into the world around us. And we are on guard against anything that might take His place of authority in our lives. Flip with me. The last place we'll go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We'll, we'll wrap it up with this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that, that who they worshipped was so important. They knew that they had to be on guard and be willing to die, which is what we'll talk about next week, this sense of martyrdom. Um, but, but they knew that, that, that they, no matter what, no matter what the cost was, no matter what the temptation was, that they could not fall prey to idolatry. They knew the price. They knew the stake. Now, 1 John ends in a really interesting way here. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Um, 1 John talks a lot about love. God is love. Love is known as Jesus dying for us on the cross. You and I should live lives of love. And there's no explicit mention of idolatry until you get to the very end of, of 1 John. It's kind of a sermon written by John to his congregation. Watch how it ends here. We'll pick it up in verse 13. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of, the God, and the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. This is a bold kind of statement. Perhaps you could uh, talk to Elijah Rising uh, if you want to see a, an application of this here. Um, verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I'm also not going to tell you what that is. That's a confusing topic, okay? All wrongdoing is sin. There is sin that does not lead to death, though. 
We keep reading. We skip that verse. 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And this, here's how, how John ends his sermon, his letter here. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I hadn't mentioned it yet up until this letter. He's had a pretty consistent theme. Love, God's love, our love for each other. And as he's, he's given his last words, his final piece of advice to his, his little group of people, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. At all costs, guard that place in your heart, in your mind, in your affection, where God, the God known in Jesus through his spirit, should be. I'll end with a quote by Eugene Peterson. He says, people who don't worship the triune God end up living in a vast shopping mall where they go from shop to shop, spending enormous sums of energy and making endless trips to meet first this need and then this appetite, this whim and then that fancy. Life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment. Motion is fueled by the successive illusions that purchasing this wardrobe, driving that car, eating this meal, drinking that beverage will center life and give it coherence. But it will not. You have two options. Everyone worships. It's the question is, what will you worship? Will you worship the one true God in which you'll find salvation, satisfaction, life? Or will you worship with some other kind of lame, empty substitute that will ultimately fall out from under you? That's the invitation that, that was available to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's the invitation that's available to you and I today. The one where, where hopefully we'll respond by coming to the table, saying that this is who we center our lives on. This is who we worship. This is where we find meaning and purpose. And the one who died for us.